Well, as we come to the end of Matthew 23, um, we are entering a transition point in Matthew. Uh, Matthew is structured around five main teaching sections by Jesus. So we've got the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, Jesus declaring, uh, talking to them about uh, his disciples about mission, chapter 10, uh, him, the, 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 the discourse of the parables about the kingdom, Matthew 13, uh, instructions about what the community of disciples does look like, Matthew 18, which was the last discourse we looked at, and Matthew 24, really starting in verse 3, is the final and culminating discourse in the gospel of Matthew. Also the hardest to come to grips with what exactly is Jesus saying and the timing and all that. So you guys can be praying for me as I prepare sermons looking into Matthew 24 and 25. That's kind of an aside. Uh, what we see in Matthew 23 is Jesus about to exit the temple. Jesus has been in the temple complex. Remember that picture I showed you a couple times? It's a big old massive multiple football size, uh, field size complex with the, temp the central temple structure, but then all these other buildings on this temple. And Jesus has been in the temple basically from Matthew 21. Matthew 21 to this point, Jesus has been in the temple. He has been disputing with the leaders of Israel. He's been teaching there, of course, but he's been disputing with the scribes and Pharisees, the chief priests and the elders of the people. And they have in no uncertain terms been opposing him and uh, and trying to get him to trip up. And Jesus, in no uncertain terms, has, has showed himself to be the supreme teacher, the ultimate leader, the true Messiah, the son of David of Israel. And based on the rejection of the scribes and Pharisees, based on the rejection of the chief priests and the elders of the people, Jesus has just, in a culminating fashion, pronounced seven woes on the leadership, on the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, you can notice how he ended that last section. Just back up a few verses in 23, just to remind ourselves. Jesus is saying in the seventh woe, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some, of will, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of Zerachiah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. See, Jesus is pronouncing woes on the scribes and the Pharisees as the leaders of Israel. But all along in Matthew, it's not just the leaders of Israel that are at fault. It's the whole wicked and adulterous generation of Israel who's been at fault. And so what we will see today is Jesus addressing that generation, giving them their final woe, in a sense, the final lament, and also hope for the future. Now, as we finish up chapter 23 and enter chapter 24, I want to ask you a question. It's a question that our, really is asked multiple times in our own culture, and it's this. How do you live on the right side of history? How do you live on the right side of history? You see, if you listen to the discourse in the public sphere out there, many, and we could take something as easy as the LGBTQ agenda stuff, many are saying, well, if you, if you want to be on the right side of history, then you, get, you got to get on board. you got to shift in your views. If you want to be on the right side of history, you got to see where history is going. Now, if you think about the logic of that claim, that is true. We do live as people in light of where we think history is going. 
So the logic, the base logic is, is absolutely true. And that's how God's designed us. We, we live based on what we expect the future to look like. We make preparations, we shift our lives. And as we end chapter 23 and as we enter chapter 24, which really this text is kind of a hinge between the two, that is the same logic that Jesus wants his disciples, that Jesus wants us to live by. We want to live on the right side of history. Jesus wants us to live on the right side of history. And what Jesus is about to do, even a little bit in this text, but going into chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is going to lay out where the future is going. And based on where the future is going, that's going to inform how you live now. Really, we're talking about eschatology, the things of the last days, right? The, um, and a lot of people think, ah, eschatology, that's just kind of, it's kind of like, a, um, you know, people either just get weirdly infatuated with it, or it's like, ah, it's all going to work out in the end. We don't need to worry about that. But Jesus, for Jesus, eschatology is inter- intensely practical because of that reason. If you see where things are going, if you see where history is going, it's going to affect what you do now. And so we're going to start today with that idea And we're going to start with something that might seem very odd and very concrete. We can see it in the big idea for this morning. The big idea for this morning in this passage is this. To rightly live in redemptive history, you must understand the desolation of the Jerusalem temple. To rightly live in in redemptive history, you must understand the desolation of the Jerusalem temple. Now, that should sound a little bit odd, because, like, what does the Jerusalem temple have to do with me? We know it's destroyed, uh, but what in the world does that have to do with me? But you can't get around it in this text, because Jesus is very much addressing that particular structure. But we're all Gentiles in this room, or at least probably most of us are. Maybe some of us have some Jewish heritage. But what does the temple in Jerusalem have to do with me? Well, a great deal. Because the temple in Jerusalem has a great deal about how history is going to unfold. And by extension, how should we live rightly in light of that redemptive history? So we're going to see that as we unfold this morning. So first, we look in verses 37, 39 in Matthew 23, and we see this idea. Jerusalem's temple will be desolate until Israel embraces its rejected Messiah. Jerusalem's temple will be desolate until Israel embraces its rejected Messiah. Look at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Now, why is Jesus all of a sudden talking about Jerusalem? Well, this is why I backed up a little bit in chapter 37. Notice the verse 36. Jesus is just pronounced well in the scribes and Pharisees. But then in verse 36, he says something interesting. Truly, I say to you, all these things, talking about the uh, blood of guilt and judgment coming upon the scribes and Pharisees, he says, that's going to come upon this generation. So Jesus is saying, yeah, it's going to come upon you, scribes and Pharisees, but it's going to come upon the whole wicked and adulterous generation. And then Jesus shifts gears And he all of a sudden starts talking about Jerusalem. Why does he talk about Jerusalem? Well, because Jerusalem is the figurehead for the whole nation. Uh, Jerusalem is the beating heart of the life of Israel. It's the city of the great king. It's where the Messiah is supposed to reign from. It's where the temple is. Um, And so Jerusalem, when Jesus is talking to Jerusalem, yes, he's talking to that city, but he's talking to that city as the representative, yes, of the scribes and Pharisees, but also of, uh, but also of that whole wicked and adulterous generation of Israel. 
So even as he's talking about Jerusalem, he's not just talking about Jerusalem. He's by extension talking about the whole generation. So he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. This is a lament, and it ties in with what we saw in the last woe. Jesus in the last woe told the scribes and Pharisees, you're sons of the murderers of God's messengers. You're, you're sons of the murderers of the prophets. And that's what Jesus is alluding to. Jerusalem has had a history of not listening to God's messengers and then of murdering them, of killing them. And Jesus is less, yes, it is still in that woe sort of vein in terms of judgment, but there's also sadness here. There's sorrow. Because notice what Jesus says next. How often would I have gathered your children together as a bird gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Now, what does Jesus mean here? First, the children of Jerusalem. Who are the children of Jerusalem? Well, that would be the citizens of Jerusalem would be the idea. But then, like we just said, Jerusalem's a figurehead for the whole nation. It's the beating heart of the life of Israel. And so Jesus is talking about the whole generation. And he gives this imagery. He's like, I wanted to gather you. I wanted to gather your citizens. I wanted to gather Israel together as a bird gathers her brood under her wings. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, what you have to understand is this imagery of a bird and of gathering Israel is a well-known motif, well-known pattern in the Old Testament. If you were to go back to Exodus 19.4, you don't have to go there, but in the, the, after God has rescued Israel from Egypt, he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai, and he says in Exodus 19, after they're at Mount Sinai, you have seen what, you, uh, you've seen what I did. I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so the idea of God as a, uh, in kind of a bird-like imagery, rescuing his people in the Exodus, redeeming them from slavery, drawing them to himself, that is a well-known imagery. You can see it again in Deuteronomy 32. You go back to Deuteronomy 32, and this is even more pertinent to our passage Deuteronomy 32 is interesting because it's a song, and it's a song that Moses is having the nation of Israel learn because he knows and God knows that Israel is going to rebel. And so Deuteronomy 32 is kind of a song version of here's Israel's history, both what you have done and what God has done and what you will do and how he will rescue you eventually. And in the middle of that, we get a little bit of a historical piece that fits in with this imagery. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. He found him, and the him here is Jacob, the nation of Israel. He found him, God found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him and he cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, Yahweh alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. And so what the imagery is there is, again, that imagery of God's like an eagle. He rescues his people from slavery, from Egypt, and then protects them. He gathers them he, he, with his wings over them. 
This imagery is used in the Psalms and it's used in the prophets as well. And what happens in Deuteronomy 32 and in the prophets is that there's this picture of, yes, Israel, you're going to fail. You're going to go into exile, but God is eventually going to regather you in a second exodus. So there's the first exodus and God gathered you. There's going to be a second exodus where God's going to regather you from exile. And that imagery of a bird doing so is tied in with that. And so if we go back to Matthew 23 and what Jesus is saying, he's saying, how often would I, Jesus, have gathered your children together as a bird gathers her brood under her wings? So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I wanted multiple times to regather you as Israel. I'm the Messiah. I've been declaring that I'm the Messiah throughout my ministry, and I wanted to regather you. This starts all the way back to John the Baptist's ministry. Really what we said in John the Baptist's ministry and Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus talks about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His ministry is primarily to them. His disciples' ministry during his life on earth is primarily to Israel. What is he seeking to do? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. He's calling Israel to repentance because what Deuteronomy 30 says is when Israel repents with all of its heart and with all of its soul, God's going to regather them as a people. And so you see John issuing this call, and then you see Jesus issuing this call, and then you see Jesus' disciples issuing this call many times which is why Jesus says, how often I, Jesus, would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You didn't want to. Which means what? This call of repentance has been going out for nigh on four years probably at this point from John to Jesus, maybe even more. It hasn't been answered. Now, granted, there are people who have repented, who have turned their allegiance from sin and self and placed their trust in Jesus as the Messiah. You have the, the disciples that are following Jesus as the Messiah. So it's not totally, and there's even more beyond the 12 disciples that are disciples of Jesus and following him. But as a whole, that wicked and adulterous generation of Israel was not willing to follow Jesus. It, they rejected Jesus. And it wasn't just pure rejection in the, in the same sense that the scribes and Pharisees did. Scribes and Pharisees are very much in opposition. They're opposing. But what we've seen a lot, a lot of the time in Jesus' ministry within the crowds is they're interested. They like the taste. They like the foretaste of the kingdom that Jesus is giving. But that's as far as they go. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them, that's as far as they will go. And Jesus counts that as rejection. They're interested. They like what Jesus has to offer. They might even call him a prophet. But they're not going to accept him as his Messiah. They're not going to come to him as the Messiah who's regathering Israel as its king, rightful king and leader. And so what is Jesus going to do? What's his response? Verse 38. See, or behold, your house is left to you desolate. Now, what does he mean by the house? Well, the answer shortly, it's the temple. The temple was known as the house of Yahweh. 
In fact, if you were to go back, um, when he flips over the tables in the temple, when he enters, right after he enters, he says, you've made my father's house a den of robbers. And he has spent this whole time from chapter 21 to now in the temple. And what is he saying? Well, first, notice the pronoun, your. Behold, your house. Meaning what? Uh, the temple is supposed to be God's house. It's supposed to be my father's house, but actually, it's your house. You, may ha- you can have the structure. You can have the buildings. You can have the beauty of this temple, but it's yours. God isn't dwelling there. And that's what he means. It, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. It's an ongoing process. So Jesus is announcing the beginning or the ongoing nature of the process of being desolate, empty. It's going to be Jerusalem's house, not the Father's house. God is leaving. And God has done this before. If you were to go back in Israel's history, you know, there's the Solomonic temple. Solomon builds this temple. Israel disobeys. They're about to go into exile. And you get this picture, actually, in Ezekiel 8 through 11, right before the exile starts, uh, there's this vision that Ezekiel has of God's presence leaving the temple exiting the temple, going out by the eastern gate and going up and sitting on top of the Mount of Olives as it exits the temple, as he leaves his people. That is what Jesus is saying. He's saying God's presence is leaving. It's leaving the temple, which also correlates with the idea that Israel still not going to come out of exile. In fact, it's going to be in further exile. Your house is left to you desolate. And then Jesus explains this a little bit more in verse 39. For, so he's just supporting, he's going to support what he just said. Your house has left you desolate. It's it's empty. For, I tell you, you will not see me, Jesus, again, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you have to understand how Jesus is saying, in what the identity of Jesus and how he is saying this. Who is Jesus? Jesus, as Matthew has clearly shown and proclaimed, is the ultimate Davidic king. He is the son of David. He is the Christ. He is the inheritor of the Davidic covenant that was laid out in 2 Samuel 7. One of the things about the Davidic covenant is not only it's going to establish a king, but that king is going to establish a temple. The Davidic king is going to be the ultimate temple builder. So Jesus is saying, as the Davidic king, as the Christ, you're not going to see me again for a while. And that is why the temple is desolate. Because here you have the ultimate Davidic king, the ultimate temple builder leaving. And therefore, God's presence is leaving. And the nation is going into exile. But there's hope here. Jesus says to them, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the idea is there's still the possibility and the potential and even the promise of seeing Jesus, the Messiah, again. Now, who's the you here? The you is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you're not going to see me again until you, Jerusalem, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that should ring a bell. 
That phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that should ring a bell because some people said it in Matthew 21. Go back to Matthew 21. You remember Matthew 21, Jesus is coming in on his donkeys. He's coming in on his donkeys to Jerusalem. He is in a new, known certain terms in accordance with the prophecy of Zechariah saying, I am your king, Israel. He's coming in as Israel's king. And notice in verse 9 of chapter 20, well, let's just say chapter 21, verse 8. Let's start there. Most of the crowd, now which crowd? Remember what we said when we worked through that text. The crowd that is around him is the crowd from Galilee in the north. Okay, so this is a bunch of Galileans around Jesus. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds, the Galilean crowds, that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the highest. So what do you have here? You have the Davidic king riding into Jerusalem, and what have you got? You've got a bunch of northerners way north of Jerusalem, the Galileans, around Jesus, acclaiming him to be the rightful king. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, citing Psalm 118, verse 26. But remember what I said in chapter 21. The question is, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, okay, we see how Galilee is responding. How's Jerusalem going to respond? Look at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowds, probably the Jerusalem crowds at this point said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And that kicked off this whole event. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. The question is, with Jerusalem being the beating heart of the nation of Israel, how is Jerusalem going to respond to Jesus? And Jerusalem does not say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It effectively rejects Jesus. And so leading to Jesus' promise in Matthew 23, 39. For I tell you, you will not see me, your Davidic king, again until you, Jerusalem, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See how that works? Jesus is saying your temple's desolate. There's no presence here of God here until you acknowledge me as your Messiah. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus does cite Psalm 118, verse 26. Go back to Psalm 118 real quick. We've looked at this psalm before because Jesus has quoted it a couple times, or it's been quoted a couple times in Matthew 21 through 23. Um, in fact, in a sense, the, uh, Psalm 118 kind of structures Matthew 21 through 23. It's at least in view. I'll remind you of the context of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, much of the psalm is spoken in the first person. And the person who's speaking in much of the psalm is the Davidic king, is the Messiah. And the Messiah effectively says, I was uh, threatened by the nations. And I was hard put to it, but I depended on God and God rescued me. And so you can kind of see the end of this. Um, let's start in verse, one, uh, verse 17 of Psalm 118. I shall not die, so this is the Davidic king speaking. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of Yahweh. Yahweh has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. 
Open to me the gates of righteousness that I might enter through them and give thanks to Yahweh. This is the gate of Yahweh, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Now notice the switch that happens in verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Do you see that? So all of a sudden, there's a change in speech here from an individual to a plurality in verse, starting in verse 22. And the plurality would seem to be Israel itself. And what are they saying? Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected. So the stone is the Messiah. Uh, the, the, these builders have rejected this stone, but it turns out that this stone actually has become the cornerstone of what structure? We argued when we went th- worked through this uh, before in Matthew, the temple. The Messiah is the cornerstone of a new temple structure. He was rejected by these builders, but he actually becomes the cornerstone, the most central part. And what does Israel say? Verse 23, this is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, this is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's Hosanna. That's when the crowds are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. It comes from that verse. Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. We bless you, Israel blesses you, from the house of Yahweh. You see what's going on here by Jesus citing this? He is looking forward. He knows he's applied in some of his parables back in Matthew 21, 22, and 22. He has applied this verse to to himself, that he's going to be rejected by Israel, by the leadership of Israel. And that rejection is going to culminate in his death and resurrection. And he's going to be shown to be the cornerstone of a people, a temple people, which connects back to with what he said about Peter and the confession of Peter in Matthew 16. But there's hope here. There's hope for Israel because Israel's going to one day say, Jerusalem is going to one day say, this rejected Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We are embracing him as the Messiah, as the right, our rightful king. They're doing it in celebration. And they're doing it from what appears to be the temple of the Lord. The exact opposite of what is happening in Matthew. In Matthew, there, Jesus is being rejected. He's becoming that rejected cornerstone. But Jesus is saying, you're going to see me again, but only when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, why does it matter, right? We read this and we're like, well, okay, we see this dynamic with Israel and its Messiah, but we're a bunch of Gentiles in this room. We're a part of the church. What does it matter? Here's why it matters. History is all about God dwelling with man. It starts with God dwelling with man in Eden. And then man is exiled from the presence, the joyful, uh, life-giving presence of God in Eden, the original temple. And then the question is in history, well, how can man get near to God again? And that question ultimately boils down to the temple. And so through much of human history, the temple 
has been in Israel, a particular people in a particular land at a particular place. If you want to draw near to God, you go to the temple because that's where God's concent- the concentrated, ma- concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth dwells. That's where heaven meets earth. So you go to the temple in Jerusalem. There's always been a temple. Much of the history, the temple has been in Jerusalem. With Jesus' rejection, the temple in Jerusalem is left desolate. which is bad news. It's bad news for Israel, but it's also bad news for the nations. Now, why do I say that? So we're of the nations, we're of the Gentiles. It's bad news for Israel and it's bad news for the nations. Why do I say that? Genesis 12, one through three, when God promises uh, what will become the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham, it ends with this. Uh, in your offspring, all the families of the ground will be blessed. And what God does, he welds the fate of Israel with the fate of the nations. And so if Israel fails, the nations fail. And so if if God is leaving the temple in Jerusalem, that's bad news for the nations. Because the idea and the program for the Old Testament is as Israel obeys, God blesses them. That blessing flows to all the nations of the world and the nations are blessed. And Jesus is saying, the good news is that one day it will be reversed. Israel will accept its Messiah. Let's let's turn to Paul in Romans. Go to Romans uh, 11 to see how Paul reflects on this and the relationship between Israel and the nations. Romans 11, and I'm going to read a section here because it's very much pertinent to what Jesus is talking about. Or you could say it like this, what Jesus says forms the backbone of what Paul is talking about. Uh, Romans 11, starting in verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow that to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Now catch this, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul is speaking at a time when the Jews aren't believing in their Messiah, but a lot of the nations are. And Paul is saying that's good in the sense that the gospel is going forth to the nations, but he's saying there's so much more. When the Jews are accepted, when they believe in their Messiah, there's going to be life from the dead. It's so much greater. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, the Jews... 
if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, see, the Jews have rejected, but that means mercy to the Gentiles, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that all he may have mercy on all. The desolation of the temple in Jerusalem matters because it's bad news. In a sense, it's good news for us because the gospel goes forth to the nations and to us. That's why we're sitting here today. But it's bad news in the sense that there is so much more when Israel accepts its Messiah, when it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he will. God is gathering a people in history. That's what he's doing. He's not merely saving individuals. Now, he loves to save individuals, but then he gathers those individuals into a people. And that people will come from not only Israel, but all the nations of the world and has into the church, into the ultimate new covenant assembly. How do you draw near to God's presence? Well, you only draw near to God's presence through the Messiah, through the temple builder. Only by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is that what your heart is saying right now? in joy, in celebration. Yes, Jesus is my king. He rules over my life. He dictates everything I say and do in life. Is that, that's what it means to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean just say, yes, Jesus saved me and I get to live however I want. That's a false gospel. Jesus, to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you are bowing first in repentance and humility and saying, I am a sinner. I deserve God's wrath upon me. I deserve woe upon me. And yet this king has become a servant to die in place of his people, not only from Jews, but also from Gentiles, such that any who bow the knee in repentance and faith and acclaim him in allegiance as Lord, who say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, looking forward to his return to rule over Israel and all the nations of the world. Is that your heart? Or is it the heart that says, I really don't want Jesus to rule over my life. I'm happy to come to church. I'm happy to sit through sermons. I'm happy to be a good person. I'm happy to even serve some other people because it makes me look good. I do not want Jesus to rule over my life. Friend, you are headed for hell. Unless you bow the knee and say, yeah, Jesus takes control. Jesus is my Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's how you get on the right side of history. Only through the Messiah.
So we've seen first that Jerusalem's temple will be desolate until Israel embraces its rejected Messiah. But then first couple verses of chapter 24, we see this. Jesus' disciples are not to cling to the desolated temple. Jesus' disciples are not to cling to the desolated temple. Look at, verse, look at chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. Now that's ominous because he's been in the temple since chapter 21. He came in as the Messiah and now he's leaving and he's leaving on bad terms with Israel. He's pronounced woe. And even going back to that imagery from Ezekiel, if you were to go back and read Ezekiel 8 through 11, remember what I said? The presence of God exits the temple, leaves by the eastern gate, goes up and sits on the Mount of Olives. Well, what's Jesus doing? He's exiting the temple, leaving by the east gate, going up on top of the Mount of Olives. Exile is happening to Israel. So he's leaving. And as he's leaving, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Now, that's just odd to me. Right? So remember, the, the temple structure is massive, right? Multiple football fields. And we're not just talking about the simple temple structure. We're talking about this big old platform uh, with a ton of different buildings and people milling about and whatever. Apparently, the temple was drop dead gorgeous. Uh, you can see reports of this in Josephus and others where, you know, you could, uh, it was all of marble and gold on the outside. So you could, like, if the sun was flashing on it, it would just blindingly beautiful from reflecting off of the gold. It was, some people described it like a, a snow-capped mountain as you were approaching from a distance because of the white marbles. Beautiful. And so, but I don't, you know, so in a sense, you can understand why the disciples pointing these things out, but it's weird. It's almost like they're tourists, right? Hey, look at that. That's cool. Hey, look at that. That's cool. That's how you normally read it. And it's like, that just is weird because these guys have been coming to the temple all their lives. These guys are from Galilee, and, but they make that trek at least once a year to come and to see the temple. Why are they pointing out to Jesus the temple? They've all seen it. Well, I think it's because of what Jesus just said. Your house is left to you desolate. I think the disciples understand that, I mean, Jesus is pretty clear <laughs> uh, what's about to happen. And I think the tone is probably something like this. Jesus, wait, 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 desolate? What are you talking about? I mean, look at this stuff. This is great. Look at how beautiful it is. It's amazing. And how does Jesus respond? Verse two, but he answered them, you see all these things, don't you? Do you not? Well, of course they do. That's why they said, said that, right? But he's just getting them to focus and linger on what they're pointing out. Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, that's an astounding statement. The temple that was there, uh, it, it, was being, it started to be refurbished in about 19 BC by Herod. It was not finished until AD 64. So it's not even done in Jesus' day. It was beautiful. And it was massive, massive, absolutely gargantuan stones, like huge. And fitted so closely with another, it's just hard to imagine. How would, you, how would you topple this thing? But it fits in with what Jesus is saying about the house being left desolate. Not only is it going to be desolate, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out, which is exactly what happened in AD 70. 
only the temple started, uh, they finished in AD 64. The Jewish rebellion broke out in AD 66. And then Rome came in AD 70 and the temple was burned. And then the Romans were ticked. And to show their might and the supremacy, they broke down the wall of Jerusalem and the temple structure. Such that when you go there today, you're going to see something and you're like, well, wait a minute, there's the Wailing Wall and there's this big old thing where the t Dome of the Rock is sitting. Well, that's, it's not the buildings of the temple, it's just the platform. Notice what Jesus is saying here is the buildings of the temple are going to be destroyed. All that you see there today is a platform that Herod had built. So what Jesus said came to pass, no stone left on another. Why? Because of the unbelief in the Messiah, the unbelief in Jesus, the rejection of him by Israel. It's wiped clean. Now, what are the disciples doing? And why does Matthew record this? Well, you have to understand who's Matthew's audience. Matthew's audience is Jewish Christians in Palestine who haven't yet seen the destruction of the temple. And what this is happening is part of the argument that Matthew's been developing is don't cling to the scribes and Pharisees. Don't cling to this temple because it's going away. And the disciples here manifest that attitude, right? This is all they ever known. This is where God's presence dwells. What are you talking about? It's going to be destroyed. And they're like clinging on to it. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out. Though the temple is where God's concentrated, man, uh, concentrated pre presence had dwelt, because of Israel's rejection of its Messiah, God was abandoning it and destroying it in judgment. Jewish Christians were not to cling to this abandoned and ultimately destroyed temple. What's the upshot for us as Gentile Christians? Well, there's a few. First, currently, there is no special presence of God in Israel because of the rejection of its Messiah. None. There's nothing special about going to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, I want to go to Israel. It's on my bucket list. I would love to see all these sites and because of the history and seeing how this all kind of looked. But there's no special presence of God there. You know, people kind of do that. They spiritualize going to Israel. They go to this site or they go to that site. And it's like, well, oh, this is really special. Well, it's cool because of the history and it's cool because of what God did there. But the temple is gone. Jesus has desolated it. They're an apostate nation until, we pray, one day they accept their Messiah. So don't get weird about stuff and sights in Israel. Can I just say that? Like, we do that sometimes, right? You had this pilgrimage to Israel, and it, again, because of the history, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but don't get weird about stuff and sights in Israel, because God's presence isn't there. They're an apostate people. We pray for their repentance. We know it's going to happen, but don't get weird about it. Now, you might say, well, this is just weird to me in general because, you know, the idea of a physical temple and, like, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do sacrifices. And you kind of think along the lines of this. Well, the temple's destroyed and that's it. There is no more temple. Oh, there's a temple. That's been very clear from, in Matthew as well. Though this temple, the Jerusalem temple, is being destroyed, there is a temple to replace it in this age. And it is called the church. Turn to 2 Corinthians 6. So 
2 Corinthians, there's elsewhere we could turn, but I, it was 2 Corinthians 6, 14. It's not like a tucked in the corner sort of thing. This is a big theme in the New Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Paul is talking to a Gentile people in Corinth, a local church. We'll start in verse 14 of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He is talking to a church. It's very clear in the New Testament, the church is the temple of the living God. Yes, there's the universal church, which hasn't been assembled yet, which will be manifested at the end of time, that people. But Paul is talking about local churches as temples. Because the individuals that make up the membership of a local church are living stones. Those who have confessed Jesus as Messiah. Those who have said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when the temple assembles, that's what church means as assembly. When the, te- when the people assemble, like we're doing right here, right now. It is the temple of the living God on earth. Do you want to draw near to the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth, then you participate in the local church. You don't go out into the woods by yourself and say, well, I'm communing with God. That is not what God has designed. God has designed for each individual living stone to take its place in a local church, to be a member, to commit to one another, to further the, uh, further the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can see Jesus has this view in Revelation 2 through 3. He talks about local churches as lampstands, being a beacon in the world, just like the temple was. There is a temple, and it is called the local church. So sometimes we think, oh, the Jerusalem's temple is destroyed. We don't need the physicality of a temple. We don't need the physicality of sacrifices. Well, Jesus is our one sacrifice, but he very much has the idea of a physical people gathering together in a physical place to manifest and bear his name. So that's another implication we can draw. Thirdly, we could draw this implication. Mankind is, in, in, is in, always a worshiper. God has designed us as worshipers. That is part of our constitution as human beings. The question is, what are you going to worship? Fallen mankind creates temples to false gods, and they worship there. Think of the Tower of Babel. What was the Tower of Babel all about? Well, the Tower of Babel was a big old temple to say what? Look what we can do. We can reach the heavens ourselves. It's a temple, and mankind is a worshiper, and mankind is worshiping himself. What are our temples today? There's always temples. And I'm not just talking in India or you know, Africa or China or Japan, where there are literal temples and literal to literal false gods. I'm talking in our culture, in our time, they're a little bit more subtle. They're a little bit more abstract, but they're there. Here's an example, malls. Now, I'm not saying I go to the mall, okay? So I'm not telling you don't go to the mall. I'm not saying that. But when I go to the mall, I get depressed. Because what do you see in the mall? 
all sorts of little booths and things where you can buy this thing and you can buy that thing. And, you know, you, teenagers hang out at the malls and people love hanging out at the mall. Why? Because it's a temple of consumerism. Isn't it? Look what I can buy. And I feel good about buying it. Well, maybe you don't go to the mall, right? Um, maybe you sit with your hoodie up and your pale face, you know, looking at a computer screen, right? Um, but it's the same thing. It's a temple it's a temple to consumerism or just technology. Look what we can do with our technology. Or even our houses. Think about our physical houses. The American dream, right? I got my house with my white picket fence and I go there. It's my castle. I'm secure. I fill it with my stuff I like. And what are you doing? You're worshiping. The fallen mankind always creates temples. As those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, the temple builder, don't cling, like the disciples were clinging to the temple that was going to be destroyed, don't cling to the beauty of these things that will be destroyed. It's all going away. Amazon's going away. Google's going away. It's going to be destroyed in the fires of God's judgment. Don't cling to it. Oh yes, use it. But don't worship it. Don't have your heart buried in it. Cling to Christ and cling to his church, which is the temple in this era. Don't cling to the beauty of these things which will be destroyed. First John 2, 15 through 17, John talks about don't love the world or the things in the world because the world along with its desires is passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do you live on the right side of history? Well, you have to understand some concrete historical facts, like the Jerusalem temple. You have to understand who we are as the Gentiles. You have to understand what God is going to do with Israel in the future. To rightly live in redemptive history, you must understand the desolation of the Jerusalem temple. Cling to Christ as the Messiah, as the temple builder. Live on the right side of history. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we could gather here this morning as a people. It feels so mundane. It feels like we're just getting together to listen to someone talk and we're singing a few songs. But you say that it is a temple, that you're the Spirit of God indwelling individuals and indwelling the assembly is here and Lord, as we have experienced in a very tangible way in the last couple of years, gathering is so essential, so necessary to our spiritual health. And we thank you for the gathering this morning. Lord Jesus, help us to follow you as our King, as our Messiah. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come back. We ask for the repentance of Israel, that they would accept you as their Messiah, that that all the blessings that you have promised this world would come. Lord, we long for that. We long for them. We pray that you would work in the hearts of the nation of Israel. Draw them back from apostasy. Father, we pray that we would not be devoted and cling to the idolatrous temples and ideologies of our age, but we would cling to you. 
And we pray that we would rightly give preeminence to your temple in this time, in this era, the local church. Forgive us for not doing so and help us to live in line with what you call us to. Help us now, even as we have a potluck for fellowship, we thank you for the fellowship of family. And as we have a members meeting, which again feels very mundane, but is central to how we act and work in the world for your honor and for your name as a local temple. Help us and give us aid, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.